The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. It was an orange rose. Mark later remembered it as blood red, but that was because he bought it with his flesh and blood. At the time, he wasn't thinking of blood, but the joy the exotic color would bring to his youngest daughter. With this rose, Mark could please at least one of his children. A fairly terrible return rate from a business perspective, but better than gross failure. This rose, blossoming miraculously in midwinter, would prove he could still provide for his family. He'd pluck it and quickly ride the few miles home. That night, he'd reunite with all 12 of his children, all grown up, all single, all still living in his house. He loved them anyway. Mark peered over several velvety orange flowers, Each was warm and bright, just like his youngest daughter. That one. Each peachy petal blushed deep red at the edges and bold yellow in the center. He imagined the smile on his daughter's face when he handed it to her. It was perfect. He reached through the leaves, careful to avoid the thorns. So much for getting home tonight. I'm Vanessa Richardson. You're listening to Tales. Today, I'm continuing Beauty and the Beast. But this isn't the version of Beauty and the Beast you've heard before. Like the last episode, this episode follows the original French folktale, first put to paper by Madame de Villeneuve in 1740, This episode includes the parts of the story you're probably familiar with. A father, a daughter, a rose, a monster. But it also features invisible servants and another hostage in the castle, one who can only communicate in dreams. If you want to hear more tales, you can find episodes on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode will release every other Saturday. So if you enjoy it, subscribe and please leave a five-star review. It helps tremendously. As a reminder, the tales on this podcast are dark, sometimes scary, and full of adult themes. As a warning, the original story of Beauty and the Beast features scary moments, death threats, and sexual innuendo. Please exercise caution for children under 13. For many years before he wandered into the wrong garden, Mark was married to a beautiful woman he loved dearly. He loved her so much that she gave birth to six sons and six daughters. He prospered as a merchant, providing his family with every comfort and novelty they could ask for. Fancy dinners, private tutors, ponies, harpsichord lessons. He threw elaborate parties for every holiday, and his wife wore a glistening diamond pendant fit for a queen. 
Life was so good, his daughters would settle for nothing less than marriage to a duke, and his sons weren't interested in leaving the home for marriage at all. He allowed them to wait, wanting only the best for his children, though he did worry his elder daughters were getting spoiled. Four suitors in a year is nothing. I've had three the past fortnight. Adela's voice carried through the halls. She was always the loud one. Evangeline, offended, raised her voice to match her sister's. Yes, but you chased them. Quentin had the gall to come courting me, as if I'd ever stoop to marry the son of a merchant. But you're the daughter of a merchant, a small voice piped up. It was the youngest, nicknamed Beauty, because as a sick baby, she'd been blessed by a fairy and made as beautiful as the first flower of spring. Her sisters were very jealous and sometimes wished the fairy had just let Beauty die. Evangeline brushed it off. Yes, but our father is 12 times as successful as any merchant in the country. Adela chimed in. We will marry kings and barons, and Beauty will marry a tutor because she loves schooling. I'm too young to get married, Beauty said and continued reading. Yes, Mark probably should have intervened sooner. Perhaps then his children would have been prepared for what befell them. It started when his wife died. It was sudden. No sickness, no warning. She simply stopped living. Shortly after her opulent funeral, the economy began to go downhill. Prices went up. Business ventures failed. Ships of the merchant's goods were lost at sea and sunk in storms. He adjusted the budget. No more tutors. No more fancy dinners. No more harpsichord lessons. Beauty was devastated that she had to quit her studies. The rest were devastated that there would be no midsummer party, but they played it off to friends as a reaction to their mother dying and not a lack of capital. For a brief time, they were able to pretend they were still wealthy. The family attended the same social engagements and lived in the same beautiful mansion. Until a sudden fire destroyed their home. They lost everything. In less than a year, Mark found himself with no wife, no business, and no home. But he did have a home. He'd forgotten that years ago he'd invested in a country house in a veritable desert, a property to rent to poor tenant farmers. He never intended to live in it, but his tenants moved out due to the economy and, well, it was a roof over his family's heads. His children whined about moving so far away, so he gently encouraged them to marry. However, their suitors turned tail when their fortunes reversed. No one wanted to marry the poor children of a broke merchant, no matter how beautiful they were. So the whole family moved to the run-down country house. Beauty was the only one who tried to make the best of it. She offered to help with farm chores, not because she had any idea how to plant wheat or clean a chimney, but because she saw the toll physical labor took on her aging father. Though Mark knew her optimistic attitude was feigned, he appreciated the effort. Over time, they adjusted to life as simple farmers. When the letter came, no one cared. Beauty was the only one who read anymore, and she simply relayed messages to the others. 
But this was a letter she had to read twice, and then again, and once more just to be sure. And then she had Mark read it. He nearly fainted. Then he reread the letter too. It was a miracle. One of the merchant ships, long presumed lost at sea, had docked at port. He was invited to fetch it, but warned that he may not get much in return, for the men aboard were eager to sell it at a low price. Mark was required to show up in person as soon as possible to make his claims. The merchant sprang from his seat and gathered all of his children to share the news. They wouldn't be rich again, but they'd have some money. We're saved, cried Evangeline. We can finally get married and move far away, cried his son Arthur. We'll get new gowns and marry princes, cried Adela. Manage your expectations. It may not be more than a pittance. The goods may sell before I arrive at the port. Mark counseled his children, worried he shouldn't have said anything. What are you waiting for? Go claim what's yours! His children pressured him to leave immediately to achieve the maximum possible profit. They asked for gifts from the port city. Fancy jams, jeweled daggers, ivory toothbrushes, golden cups, and dresses of satin and lace. Through this, beauty remained silent. She was savvy enough to see that one ship could not support a family of 13 at their former lifestyle. Mark admired this about her. Of all his children, she was perhaps the most like him. After a quarter hour of excitable discussion, the conversation died down. Mark figured his children didn't have anything else to say on the subject, so he was shocked when Evangeline piped up again. You've been awfully quiet, beauty. Adela replied first. Of course, she's living her dream, destitute, like a character from a book. Beauty merely wants to bake crabapple pie and sleep with the cow. I didn't want her to freeze last week. We need the milk, Beauty explained. Her cheeks turned red. Mark stepped in to prevent an argument. Evangeline makes a fair point. Beauty, what would you like? He asked. Nothing, she said. This made everyone in the room uncomfortable. Mark clarified that it could be anything, even the smallest favor. Beauty stayed firm. I don't need anything from our old life. How about a new butter churn? Evangeline smirked. Or a feather duster. Adela snickered. Beauty shook her head. Mark knew she meant well, but it came off as stuck up. He'd better put an end to this before his daughters started fighting. Come along, sweetheart. You must miss something from life in the city, Mark begged. Beauty pursed her lips, thoughtful. Fine. The only thing I want from my old life is my mother. Mark saw guilt and pain pass his other children's faces. The room grew hot with shock and tension. He fiddled with his shirt, stifled. Beauty was right, but it hurt all the same. No one had words. Adela sniffled, holding back tears. Beauty realized she'd crossed a line. She backtracked. Obviously, we all miss Mother deeply, but since we can't get her back... I suppose a rose would be nice. I haven't seen one in years. It would be beautiful, and I could plant the seeds this spring. Everyone exhaled. 
Mark forced a smile for his youngest daughter. Wonderful. If it's possible, beauty gets a rose. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to Tales. Mark set out to the port city full of hope. The journey was long, but if he could regain a semblance of his former wealth, he'd be that much closer to the life he had shared with his dead wife. However, he arrived in the port city to discover that everything had sold, and the portion allotted to him was barely enough to cover his travel there and back and pay his attorney. He'd return home penniless as he came. Riding his horse home, Mark practiced his explanation to his children. The thought of their disappointed faces and valiant attempts to hide it made him anxious. Should he frankly explain that the world would cheat them again and again, apologize for getting their hopes up? Whatever he did, he couldn't cry in front of them. He didn't realize he was caught in a snowstorm until his hat blew off. Jerked from his contemplation, Mark looked for a place to take shelter. All he could see was trees. His horse stopped. He kicked her. Keep moving. Then he saw the wolves. His horse saw them a second later. The horse spooked and threw him. As she galloped off, the wolves chased her. Even the wolves knew Mark had nothing to offer. With no other way home, he hurried after the animals into the dense fog. The fog blinded him. He couldn't see his horse, the wolves, or even the trees. He trekked forward, groping for any kind of shelter, when he saw it. The castle. Salvation surrounded by a moat. And even better, the moat was frozen over. He gingerly crossed it and knocked on a side door. Mark tumbled into the castle as soon as the wooden door unlocked and opened. Thank you kindly. Hello? Good sirs, fine ladies. It seemed as if he was alone. But who had opened the door and built the roaring fire? I suppose I'll warm up a bit. He pushed his hands towards the thick, hot air and loudly stomped snow off of his boots. He cleared his throat a couple times. He made as much noise as possible. No answer. No person in sight. What was in sight, and how could he have not seen this before, was a dining table set for one. It smelled like a roast. He hadn't eaten beef since he lost his fortune, and he hadn't eaten at all since he left the city that morning. Mark sniffed, detecting, yes... Marsala wine sauce. He salivated. Maybe, maybe just one bite. He could repay the castle's owners later. He uncovered the dish. The plate somehow still sizzled. Thick, rare sirloin, button mushrooms, and yellow potatoes swimming in Marsala sauce. Surely whoever let him inside would return soon, right? Someone had unlocked that door. After a moment's pause, he dug in. Starving, Mark's animal instinct roared to life. He consumed the whole plate before he could help himself. 
He polished off the buttery rolls and crudite, too. He hated himself for eating that much, but he positively couldn't stop. He left the table to find his hosts. Better to ask forgiveness, he thought. Mark wandered through several open doors, admiring the high ceilings, ornate crown molding, antique chairs and Persian rugs. Each room was bigger than the last, stately and empty. The rich food made his feet drag. He ought to rest for a moment, sit, allow his hosts to come to him. Mark again fell prey to his instincts and dozed off in a chair. Mark awoke to the smell of croissants and chocolate. While he slept, someone had left breakfast and fresh clothes beside his chair. Thank you, he called. No answer. Well, they must want him to eat. Maybe they're just shy. After breakfast, he noticed the snow had cleared, and outside the window there was a lush, spring-like garden. Maybe some kind of giant greenhouse? That had to be costly, but if they could afford that expense, feeding a stranger was nothing. It made sense. Mark peered out the window and saw human figures. Eager to express his thanks, he rushed to the garden. Unfortunately, those figures were statues. He'd never seen stonework that complex. It was almost as if the statues could breathe, but they remained motionless and cold. Mark continued through the garden. He saw the rosebush and picked a flower. The monster charged. Mark fell in fright. The beast's trunk knocked the rose from the merchant's hand. It flew several feet, spare petals floating in its wake. The creature glared down at Mark. It panted, steaming, meaty breath through its tusks. Its furry torso shook with rage. Mark tried to stand, to run from the abomination, but it placed a clawed paw on Mark's chest, immobilizing the frightened merchant. Don't try to outrun me. Mark nodded. Thief, it spat. Please, I never intended to offend you or reject your hospitality. Let me explain. I have children, Mark pled. After a long moment, the beast nodded. Mark told his story, starting with the death of his wife. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now back to our story. Mark inhaled slowly as the beast considered his story. For what felt like several minutes, its claw remained planted on Mark's chest. After an unnatural amount of time, the beast proposed a sadistic bargain. Six daughters, you don't need that many. Give me one, and you can live. But she must come willingly to suffer your punishment for you. Theft requires a blood payment. Make no mistake, either you or your daughter shall die. Mark closed his gaping mouth. You want me to sacrifice my child to save my own life? The beast extended a cat-like claw. You have twelve children, only one life. Go home for a month. 
tell your daughters they can save you by coming here to die. Make your decision. If no one is here at the end of the month, I shall track you down and kill your entire family and anyone protecting you. Mark had no intention of bringing one of his daughters to her death, but he'd take one last month with his children and a chance to say goodbye to them. He agreed to the bargain, fully intended to return alone at the end of the month and pay the price for his crime. The beast let Mark stand. Don't forget to take a rose before you leave. After all, it's worth your life. When their father's horse came home alone, the merchant's children were annoyed. There was no note, and the saddlebags were empty. Perhaps their father had ridden home in a fine carriage, and the horse simply got loose from the procession. But then Beauty pointed out that the horse's back left leg had bite marks. The sons set out to search the surrounding wilderness. The daughters cared for their injured, dehydrated horse. Beauty cleaned the wound, while Evangeline rubbed the animal down. As they fussed over the only source of transportation the family had, another horse trotted up, this one healthy, with a rider in fine vintage clothes. The sisters assumed he was a messenger, until the rider dismounted and approached Beauty with open arms. Wait, it couldn't be, but it was. This man, aged by stress and dressed ridiculously, was her father. Beauty tackled him with a hug. Father! The rest of her sisters followed suit. They avalanched him with questions. Are you well? How was the port city? What did you bring for us? Beauty knew from her father's face that the answers to the first two questions were bad news. That meant the third question's answer was probably bad, too. Her father explained the situation at the port. They were still broke. But he did have one surprise. Mark revealed the orange rose, luminous on the lifeless plain. The perfume made Beauty's head spin with joy, like dancing to her favorite song after a few glasses of champagne. It was the happiest she'd been in years. Beauty's father explained that on his trip home, he passed a rose bush and picked this up. They went inside for a simple meal, and Beauty put her rose in a vase at the center of the table. Beauty couldn't figure out why her dad was so morose. He'd been back for three weeks now, and seemingly still hadn't gotten over the disappointments at the port city. It wasn't like him to dwell on things. After the economic downturn, moving out to the country, and even their mother's death, her father had at least pretended to be all right after a few days. She asked him what was wrong, and he responded by sitting the whole family down. Beauty's father told the story of the castle, and when he got to the part in the rose garden, her stomach dropped, her ears rang, she shivered uncontrollably, the glowing flower, still magically alive, taunted her. It's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. The guilt took over Beauty's mind. 
It's my fault. It's my fault. It's my fault. She'd killed her father, and she didn't need her siblings' dirty looks to confirm it. Her siblings desperately suggested ways out of the bargain, arguing over escape tactics and legalities. Beauty couldn't speak. She could barely think. Fed up, her father stopped the arguments. Enough. There's only one way out for me. The monster was clear, but it's too terrible. I won't consider it. The children begged to know the bargain's condition. Beauty was still entrapped in, it's my fault, it's my fault, it's my fault. Her father relented. I can only be released if one of my daughters returns with me, willing to die in my stead. Beauty tore her gaze from the rose. I'll do it, she volunteered. Her sisters nodded in agreement. It seemed fair. No, her father was firm. I'll ride to my death at dawn. He left the room before anyone could get another word in. Before dawn the next morning, Beauty silently slipped on her cloak and mounted the magical horse her father returned on. She hid the rose in her bag so the beast could verify she was the girl he requested. Beauty would not let her father die because of her. Beauty kicked the horse. It didn't budge. Come on. She kicked again. Nothing from the horse. Come along. Time to ride. Let's go. She encouraged it, offering a carrot. The horse took the carrot, but stayed in place. She kicked it again. The horse still didn't move. Don't tell me there's some magic word, please. Home. Take me to your master. Beauty's father rushed outside, awoken by the horse's neigh. Beauty, get off that horse right now. I won't let you die for me. Beauty kicked the horse again. Crying, the merchant grabbed his daughter, meaning to pull her off. As he clenched her waist, a gust of wind tornadoed around the horse, lifting the trio. Mark nearly lost his grip in shock. Hang on, father, Beauty called. She gripped her father's hand and pulled him into the saddle behind her. They clung desperately as the flying horse whisked them off. The horse landed in front of the most beautiful palace Beauty had ever seen. It was a feast of lights, decorated in evanescent banners that changed colors with each bright firework overhead. An invisible band played, matching time to the twinkling lights and explosions. As she and her father dismounted the horse, Beauty thought, if this was her welcome, maybe, just maybe, it wouldn't be so bad. But then, the beast flung open the door. Never mind, it would be bad. The beast bent its massive head so its tiny, beady eyes could see over its scaly nose and look down at her. Mismatched elephantine tusks pushed its slimy mouth into a constant grimace. Its overgrown claws were clearly the source of several small rips in its fine vintage suit, revealing dirty, matted fur that seemed to cover everything but its scaly face and its tail. It had the tail of a rat. 
Beauty stuck to her resolution, trying to mask her terror. I'm here to take the place of my father, she told the beast. It was all she could do not to curl up and cry under his glare. The beast nodded and circled her like a hungry cheetah. As he checked her out, Beauty felt naked. She'll do. Follow me, the beast said. Beauty and her father followed the beast through the garden, careful not to tread on its swaying rat tail. Beauty marveled at the lifelike statues. How did they get the wrinkles like that on the older man? And that child statue seemed practically mid-jump. But more striking than the statues was the rosebush. Its broken branch stuck out, limp and dangling, the garden's sole imperfection. A fearsome image crossed Beauty's mind, her own bleeding, severed head resting where the rose used to be. Inside, the beast offered them an elaborate feast. Beauty figured the monster's plan was to fatten her up before he ate her. She ate very little, hoping she could buy some time. After the meal, the beast turned to the merchant. You can remain here tonight, before you leave tomorrow. Choose gifts from the palace for your other children, those whom you love more than they love you. The beast left them alone. Neither slept that night. The next morning, as they tried to say goodbye, Mark assured Beauty he would take no gifts for her siblings. I won't pick any more roses. I won't take clothing or jewels. I won't take so much as a toothpick. I refuse to lose another child to this hideous monster. Ahem, said the beast. He'd entered silently behind them. Follow me. The beast led them to a room full of beautiful things. Endless wardrobes of clothes, chests of jewels, fine cloth, spices, china, paintings. Take anything, the beast said. Mark fiddled nervously with his cravat. He didn't want to reject the beast outright, but he was a man who learned from his mistakes. Thank you kindly for your hospitality, good sir. However, I require nothing. The beast bared his teeth and rested a single sharpened talon on Beauty's collarbone. Fill a chest. Pick gifts for your children. Mark quickly selected twelve, no, eleven, pieces of treasure, one for each child, and put them in a trunk. Thank you, sir. That's it? Take more! Take more! Greed can't do you any worse than it already has by killing your daughter. The beast hovered, unaware of his lack of tact. Mark complied, slowly filling the trunk with gold. The beast nodded. I'll take this to the horse. When you've said your goodbyes, meet me in front of the castle, Mark. Be quick. Then he pulled a dress from one of the wardrobes. Long, white, mostly lace, he handed it to Beauty. When you said your goodbyes, remain here. Dress in this. Beauty accepted the dress. As soon as the beast left, she ran to her father's arms. 
She wanted to appreciate each second of her final hug, but it slid away like sand between her fingers. Later, she could barely remember it. Worried a delay could lead to her father's death, Beauty told him to go. Her father nodded and left. Beauty took a deep breath. She put on the beautiful, revealing white dress. Though it was incredibly tight, it was oddly comfortable, the way only well-made clothes can be. She went to the door. She was locked in. Right, he told her to stay here, and he didn't give her a choice. This was how she'd spend her last days. She took a few more shaky breaths and broke down crying. Beauty cried herself to sleep. In her dream, she walked through the palace gardens. In the orange grove, she came upon the most handsome man she'd ever seen. He sat with his back against a tree, one knee bent, casually tossing around an orange. She approached, excited to see another human. Hello. Oh, you're new, he said, surveying her. New? she asked. To the castle. You are a prisoner, aren't you? What do you think? He threw the orange at her. She caught it and tossed it back. It's pretty. She stepped closer and sat next to him. Something about this man drew her in. He peeled the orange. You should know, nothing here is as it appears. Want a bite? He offered her a bite of the orange. She took one puckered and spat it out. Sour. See? Nothing is as it seems. Even dreams don't work the same. That's how we can talk now. We can speak through the castle's magic. The man leaned closer to her. You know, we could work together. Beauty's mind raced. This was no ordinary dream. This had to be some magic at work. Perhaps this was part of her punishment. How? Wait, and who are you? Are you real? She asked. The man took her hands in both of his, holding them to his chest, and implored her. I'm a fellow prisoner. Find me, beauty. Rescue me. Together, we can escape this cursed place. He looked her in the eyes in that instant, Beauty knew the man was more than a dream, and that finding him was her only hope of escaping the wrath of the beast. Next time, we'll finish the tale of Beauty and the Beast. Beauty attempts to rescue her fellow prisoner and tries to avoid being eaten by the beast. The fairies return to cast a few more curses, and everyone is shockingly okay with incest. Thanks for listening to Tales. If you want to listen to more tales, you can find us and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory, or listen on parcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, we'd truly appreciate a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Tales was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. 
Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Tales is written by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 